from the EAH team. Welcome to Everything About Hydrogen. This is the podcast that explores the world of hydrogen and its derivative technologies and interrogates how it is changing the world of energy as we know it. Join hosts Patrick Malloy, manager in the Breakthrough Technologies Group at RMI, Alicia Eastman, President of Intercontinental Energy, and Chris Jackson, CEO of Proteum, as the team speak to some of the most innovative and exciting players in the industry. If you're a fan of the show, we would love if you'd leave us a five-star review for everything about hydrogen wherever you get your podcasts. It really does help boost us up the charts and help more people find us. And with that, I'll leave it to the team and let's get on with the show. Hey, Alicia. So I think we've got a a particularly interesting interview coming up this morning. um, How have you been? Good. Very busy. Right now is MEPC 80 for the International Maritime Organization, and it's ending today. Uh, They've already announced that they've agreed to net zero by 2050, which was definitely expected, but it is also definitely better than uh, 2100, which is what they had before. And we'll see the results um, coming in at the end of the day, I think, and and people will be uh, really uh, digesting that. We're actually, uh, Global Maritime Forum is hosting a uh, webinar on uh, what has been achieved uh, to sort of digesting those results, speaking about them, and what needs to be negotiated further on the 13th of of July. So people can better understand the implications and and see where we are and where we need to continue to work towards. Um, Because it's not like every MEPC is where all the decisions are made. I mean, there's still negotiations and even sort of circular agreements uh, in between. So, um, you know, it's not over, but there'll be a lot more to negotiate, I'm sure. How about you? What have you been up to? Nothing as um, globally, uh, I suppose, life-changing or industry-changing as, as some, some of that, for sure. That's a, that's a pretty substantial step forward for that sector i suppose you know as we're as we're post the 4th of july here now uh, it's probably worth saying that we are coming into the the window for um kind of the the next phases on these kind of hub foa announcements or the the, the responses for questions and also obviously with some greater clarity and guidance coming from irs and or not the IRS, excuse me, the Treasury Department, I'll get it right, uh, regarding kind of tax credit kind of recognition and standards around that. So it may be the summer, but it is uh, it is certainly not quiet, uh, quiet days at the moment. And I think as we get kind of further into the year, we start to see the real uh, project implementation, project feasibility pressures for some of these hubs coming into being. So uh, a lot of folks talking about their developments once again after a little bit of a lull after the photo submissions went in but before we get too far down the rabbit hole on on these specific kind of uh topics i suppose the the question the question is who, who have we got on today we we have a really impressive guest i i met her at a ukrainian event several months ago after i'd set up the um Operation Antifreeze that was to help uh, Ukraine get through the winter with uh, renewables and and other um, green uh, solutions. And uh, she's just incredible. Like at this event, she was one of the people, but there were actually quite a few 
members of government who are, you know, working on the hydrogen roadmap and they're redesigning things and they're, you know, building projects. And all of this is happening with the war very, very active. I mean, people having electricity only one out of four days or having, you know, part of their building is bombed out in that day. It doesn't seem to keep them from going to work. It's, it's absolutely incredible, like how resilient uh, Ukrainians are. Um, and, and she really is, is, is top of the list, I would say. So I'll, I'll give you just a little bit of her background and then we can jump into the interview and, and learn, learn from her. Her name is Natalia Katzer Bukovska, and she is the founder of the Ukrainian Sustainable Fund, which is aimed at accelerating Ukraine's renewable energy transition, including renewables and hydrogen projects in the pipeline. Unfortunately, she's been based in London since Russia's attack on Ukraine last year, but she was previously a member of parliament as head of the Subcommittee on Sustainable Development, uh, Strategy and Investments, which is part of the Committee on Energy, Nuclear Policy and Security. And she is also an Atlantic Council Millennium Fellow. She went to Harvard Kellogg. She has also private sector experience even before she went into parliament. So um, she has a, a really uh, 360 view of sort of the energy situation in Ukraine and um, is really excited and, and interested in, in building uh, a green uh, Ukraine and, and make, turning this war into an opportunity to basically leapfrog a number of the, um, the sort of dirtier um, sources of, of energy that the country has been working with before. And I think it's best to hear it right from her. Natalia, how are you doing? It's great to have you on the podcast. Uh, good day, everyone. Uh, thank you, Alicia, for inviting me. Well, I suppose it should be a very important conversation about Ukrainian hydrogen potential. Basically, I'm well taking into account the situation which is going on, and uh, for sure we need to think about how to make Ukrainian economy more resilient in short, middle, and long-term period. So I suppose uh, this conversation is very good uh, opportunity to talk about. I mean, I think actually it would be really interesting to our listeners to hear a little bit more about you, a bit about your background and in the public and private sector, and, you know, what, what, what the current situation is due to the war in terms of your um, activities and, and uh, what, what you've been working on. Oh, well, maybe I will start from my political career. So from 2014, I was elected as a member of parliament and I uh, took responsibility for Ukrainian energy transition. Uh, so it was my big devotion in 2014 when the Green Revolution just started to implement all necessary regulatory framework for renewables to thrive in Ukraine. So we did, uh, we was like a big enthusiast uh, with uh, our team in parliament, Western educating professionals, like post-revolution political members of parliament. And uh, since 2014, we have uh, great results. Uh, so renewables uh, grow from uh, 0.5 till 12% into our system. So we also reform all markets, including energy market, uh, uh, also implement uh, electricity market reform, energy uh, efficiency. So the thing was really good. So country was on the right direction. And uh, we end up in 2019 when the markets, energy markets was fully functional. 
So since uh, I left Parliament, I decided to devote my career to uh, Ukrainian Sustainable Fund, which is a portfolio developer uh, in green energy. So we develop uh, solar, wind. We also have an investment consultancy for big projects. Uh, and we had a great plan ahead of us. But what came, and um, in 2022, uh, we faced a tremendous challenge uh, because our energy system faced uh, constant attacks. And uh, now uh, half of renewables are under the attack and uh, also our whole system, is, uh, which is functioning uh, relatively okay, but still uh, need to be supported and changed. So we decided uh, uh, that we need to expand our portfolio, build more and develop more green projects, including hydrogen, and advocate green resilient uh, reconstruction of Ukraine. Uh, I'll be talking a little bit more about particular project and our vision, but basically it was like my background, how I came to politics and then turned to private sector. Before before politics, I also worked for private sector and it was connected to energy. Uh, so now uh, I'm fully devoted for Ukrainian green resilient reconstruction. Perhaps you can share with, with our listeners your kind of role in producing the, the hydrogen roadmap for Ukraine and also... I suppose, you know, what, what that has entailed in, in kind of pulling that all together. Well, uh, so as I said, the aim of Ukrainian Sustainable Fund now is to rebuild Ukraine in a green, sustainable way. And we also, uh, with the challenge of war, we also faced of, with the uh, numbers of opportunities. Because now our system, old-fashioned system, can be redesigned and rebuilt from the scratch and uh, in technological uh, way in line with the new technology. And hydrogen production actually become like new energy religion religion now. So I suppose uh, Ukraine has a great resources uh, to be a hydrogen wall and uh, a hydrogen hub for uh, Europe. So therefore, we are, first of all, adv- advocating for this. And now, for, as you heard, all the reconstruction conference efforts, they uh, they not uh, they only associated Ukrainian energy reconstruction with green and sustainable. Uh, so hydrogen, why why it's very suitable for our country? First of all, we have enormous uh, uh, natural resources, so plenty of land, uh, uh, very well developed uh, uh, gas transportation system and infrastructure. Uh, we also have a working force, water resources, which could be basic infrastructure, which could be a good base for hydrogen production. Ukraine also have enormous resources to develop renewables, wind, solar, and it could it become cheaper and cheaper, I mean, like production of electricity. So therefore, we can establish this production, and we are. So now the projects are undeveloped on the pre-feasibility, feasibility study, at ready-to-build stage, and quite few of them are now applying for finance. So even during the war, we have a few projects, big wind, solar, which is uh, uh, launched and built during the war year. And uh, war is not impediment for uh, green uh, energy development. Uh, We also have good port infrastructure. So this port infrastructure together with uh, 
great uh, connection to the grids can be absolutely complementary to the hydrogen development. Therefore, uh, I believe, uh, and not it's not only my vision, but for instance, in all the European plans for reconstruction, so-called Marshall Plan for Ukraine, everyone in Ukraine is mentioned as an energy hub and the potential base for uh, green hydrogen, green ammonia production for Europe. And speaking of that, I mean, I, I know it does make sense to leapfrog, which is, I guess, a positive of having some of your infrastructure destroyed. How do you see the future energy mix for Ukraine? I mean, I, I know obviously there will be a role for hydrogen, but it's not going to be 100% hydrogen. And do you think Ukraine has learned lessons from the war about the difficulties of centralization, the district heating that was very easy to dismantle, and and will will there be a future energy mix that is more distributed, which which hydrogen could play a, a role in? Mm-hmm. Well, uh, I suppose when we start green development in Ukraine, so everyone thought that we are like half insane because that it's very expensive, it's a luxury, so we could not afford this like high green tariffs. But now for, uh, green become equal security. Uh, so because, for instance, you can and everyone is facing this uh, nuclear blackmail when Russian kept uh, Zaporizhia the biggest uh, nuclear station and every time they said they will blow it up and this is not only Ukrainian problem now because nuclear has no boundaries. So it's very difficult and vice versa. It's very difficult to blackmail and to use as a weapon, energy as a weapon when it's renewable green diversified. So like uh, even to target wind farm by rockets, it's like almost impossible because uh, because they are spread around. Uh, so we believe that diversified green decarbonized energy is a part of our energy security strategy and why we are developing this project now, because uh, we need to make Ukrainian uh, energy system and economy resilient during the war. Uh, if we are thinking that the, the war is uncertain and it's not possible to forecast when it ends, it will end by our victory, I am 100% sure. But since uh, since war is going on, uh, we are uh, redesigning the system to make it more flexible, secure, stable, and biogas, biomass, uh, uh, wind, solar, hydrogen generations, it's actually the element of energy security. What is the mix? You ask about the mix. Before war, it was 12% renewables, as I said, and they was developing enormously. We had uh, 30% coal generation, and basically Russia targeted all these coal stations. Mainly every station was uh, partly or destroyed, and uh, it's not, there is no sense to build coal and to rebuild the same uh, old-fashioned uh, dirty production. So, therefore... It's a huge gap for substitution. Nuclear constitute 57% of electricity production in, in, in our country, which is quite big. And nuclear, maybe someone said it's clean, but, uh, you know, it's not secure in, in our country because we have this wild neighbor and it's the first time since ever in, there is no precedent when nuclear station was used as a weapon and uh, was there was like a blackmail to 
blow it up. Uh, so therefore, I suppose the nuclear should be changed maybe to SMR, but I would eliminate them, especially in the eastern part of Ukraine, uh, because of energy because of general security issues. So therefore we have gas in our system. We consider gas is as a transitional power for uh, marginal power for energy transition. So I think there will be room for gas for a year ahead because we need to switch from coal first and then think about nuclear, how to make it more secure. And all our nuclear stations, they are close to the end uh, and they were out. And by the 2050, they should be substituted. And this is huge, huge production. So I don't believe uh, there will be enough investments uh, in nuclear in such as big volumes as it was before. And now it become even more expensive than to build renewable from the scratch. So therefore, uh, I believe uh, Ukraine uh, can produce enormous amount of biogas as well as, as a solar wind generation, which could be based for green hydrogen production. And with this huge infrastructure, very well developed, very well connected, uh, we can be a hub for Europe and also the like point of stability where Ukraine now is, even during the war, we're exporting electricity to Europe and there was a, the price went up enormously. So I suppose in future Ukraine could be a stabilization point. And I guess green steel as well. You have the opportunity to potentially export green steel into Europe. Exactly. So um, I just will share some like ex- my own experience. So we just recently closed the deal, 300 megawatts direct BPA to from renewable source to a biggest metallurgy producer. So even during the war, they are thinking how to turn green because they know they will face this uh, taxa- taxation. CBAM 1, 2, and uh, they start prepare themselves now. Uh, so it was like really a turning point in our market because uh, it's the first such a spill deal ever. And uh, it shows that it's possible to make a commercial viable project, green commercial viable project, uh, not subsidized by the state. So the next step, and it was our last law, uh, we should make uh, renewables uh, market competitive. So I suppose the age of subsidies uh, is ending. Uh, so now all the projects, they are build their financial models on the market price, which is quite good. So maybe maybe following on and thinking about the development kind of positioning, you know, you've, you have a deal pipeline for renewables and hydrogen that, that you're continuing to build while the war still rages. You know, I suppose... If, if I can put myself in, in the shoes of somebody listening in for this this kind of storyline, how, how do you do that? How do you, I can only imagine you've met some very skeptical financiers and maybe some supply chain cons- questions that are maybe atypical from if this wasn't in, in the environment that you're, you're dealing with. So, so maybe a little bit of how you've gone about kind of enabling this pipeline. Oh, well, first of all, last year, for sure, when we started, it was shock for everyone and uh, there was no too much uh, enthusiasm. But this year shows uh, uh, like enormous activity on energy market because there is a huge gap and uh, this gap on the market, which was caused by attacks uh, and uh, some partly destroyed infrastructure. Uh, so therefore, like it should be uh, closed by the market. And uh, even now, without any security guarantees, without any 
Bore Insurance uh, uh, market players uh, continue to build and to launch projects. Uh, secondly, we just recently uh, had a, a strategic Ukrainian reconstruction forum in London. So this con- conference was very important uh, because G7, uh, United Kingdom announced enormous support for, first of all, green energy. Secondly, for country as such. Uh, so now, uh, if, for instance, those who are not certain and uh, should take war risk into account can apply for uh, war insurance, and uh, it's about 3.5 billion war insurance issued uh, uh, to support uh, Ukrainian project. Uh, so basically, it covers physical physical damage caused by uh, by missiles uh, to this project. And uh, if company want to invest into green, they can do it now uh, using these financial instruments. The same as a lot of expert finance, uh, uh, concession finance, uh, green philanthropy, everything is going towards reconstruction because uh, everyone understands that uh, Ukraine has enormous uh, losses, especially our nature uh, was damaged. And uh, if only we'll turn green and sustainable, it could compensate somehow the damage caused to environment and uh, the green transition, because as I said, climate has no boundaries. And it will touch upon neighboring states, not only maybe region, but also the global energy issues. So, uh, yes, and what is also important, our project are developing, and the most important thing in hydrogen development, how we will transport it. So now there are a few initiatives to develop hydrogen Corridors, uh, so such as uh, Blue Danute Green Hydrogen Road, Central European Hydrogen Corridor. So our gas transmission system operators they join uh, European Clean Hydrogen Island uh, Islands. So they actually working on uh, the roadmap and how the hydrogen can be transported to Europe. And it looks like positive studies show that we can use uh, our gas transmission system. Uh, and uh, first of all, secondly, uh, everyone is thinking about to what extent these projects are commercially viable. So uh, first of all, it would depend, the, the success of this uh, uh, initiative would depend on uh, offtake price. Uh, and now I know there is there are a few contracts signed between potential hi- green hydrogen producers and European steel metallurgic industry to buy out hydrogen for years ahead. Uh, so therefore, I suppose these processes are not revertible. So they actually, uh, the, the, the industry would be developing. And during the war, yes, the risk are a little bit higher, but uh, you can be the first and uh, you can take advantage uh, if you invest or start project now, e- even though it would be some preparational stage, land permission. It takes also one, two year. So the uncertainty of war, plus you can minimize this uncertainty by war insurance, but start project design now for, to make it ready when war ends. Yeah, that's 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 really interesting. And I, I suppose, you know, that's a pretty comprehensive suite of options for kind of, I, I suppose, de-risking, for lack of a, a, a better word, on the project side. I suppose as a follow-on question, very straightforwardly, you know, what, what remains the biggest barrier? What's the, the, the challenge that is still to be overcome? 
um, appreciating that that's a lot that's already been overcome. Well, uh, I'm very happy that now it's not only hypothetical discussion when we're talking about hydrogen production in Ukraine first. So many companies like BlackRock, uh, as well as uh, Morgan Stanley, uh, they announced uh, funds and investments into Ukrainian green transition and energy and energy production. Uh, so they are working on the structures. Uh, they are looking at projects. So now at the project level, there is a many, many uh, movement and interest. What is the obstacles? For sure, what is the obstacle? Because, uh, first of all, it's uncertainty. But this year, we, we was working on uh, issuing uh, war insurance. I suppose to, to a certain extent, war insurance will minimize these risks. Secondly, finance. Uh, so I suppose... Uh, Ukraine received a, a huge number of concession finance, which could be taken by the companies. And uh, uh, G7 countries, they truly believe that uh, Ukrainian reconstruction would be done through the private sector uh, initiatives. So it's up to investor and strategic partner to apply for finance in their own country or insurance uh, and go to Ukraine, produce uh, green energy or hydrogen. So... Uh, and there is a like gap and uh, demand for this, big demand for this. So I suppose yes, uh, finance and uh, and war they are uh, the obstacle. But uh, compared to last year, I see the huge progress in in this regard. In, in terms of the interest rates, like um, you would see from development banks, obviously they would always be lower than coming within Ukraine during war, or even probably. Uh, when it's not war, the development banks tend to give uh, favorable interest rates. But now that interest rates are high in a lot of places, like all over the world, are you seeing a really a, a big difference that can be made if you get a loan from EBRD or from, from one of the multilaterals? What kind of interest rates bands are, are they looking at? Well, it depends on the institution. For sure, uh, Ukraine receives uh, finance on concession condition. And uh, this is condition finance. Uh, first of all, it's not comparable to local rates because it's quite high, but it's competitive to international rates. Uh, so for sure, you will get better better condition if you apply through uh, Ukrainian reconstruction fund for investment, or if you just go for, to the market and uh, do project everyone else, everywhere else. So this is like the natural stimulus for industry and uh, investors to go to Ukraine because uh, a lot of, uh, as you said, obstacles and uncertainty. But from the other side, you have better economics, for sure. Like the economics of the project, like average in Ukraine, much, much more better than like in Europe or everywhere else because uh, we are emerging markets, uh, markets going on, and uh, you can have like payback period of project four, five years, which is IRR, more than 20% and, and higher. So, uh, therefore, you can take advantage uh, from, from this, but from the other side, uh, it's necessary to structure well and to apply for right insurance, right uh, finance source. So, well, it's not easy, but doable, and uh, I believe uh, uh, Ukrainian reconstruction would be mainstream for a year ahead. It's a very positive development. It seemed to, it was a very successful uh, event last week, and uh, we wish you um, all the best in in in, um, 
in actually executing uh, your portfolio and uh, moving forward with the projects and hope to see you back in Ukraine uh, post-war and then rebuilding in a green way. Thank you so much for coming on to the show and, and, and really um, enlightening us on a, a number of different issues that you're facing, but also all of the positive things that you have achieved and that other people are helping with, um, which is actually a, a really optimistic, leaves us in an optimistic place, which was not expected uh, when, we, when we start with the war in the first place. So thank you again for coming on and also uh, for everything that you do. Thank you so much for this interview. I suppose it's very important to raise awareness first. And uh, then uh, we are really very uh, happy of the results of the reconstruction conference and all these financial uh, commitments which the G7 took. But uh, the next step is realization. And realization is much more important. Uh, so maybe I miss the, like, not last but not least uh, uh, reason why why to look into this direction because this investment has not only economic effect it's a huge social impact and uh, humanitarian as well so we need to create uh, working places for people to come back uh, all the all those who was forced to leave uh, their country so we can also create cleaner energy in the center of Europe in the geographical center of Europe so basically we are very well connected and located centrally so which is also important uh, so it has also like social uh, impact uh, humanitarian sec- energy security impact so if Ukraine will be strong enough, uh, so I don't think uh, the station station will change, but we we need to rebuild the energy security system in Europe, uh, not only in Europe, in world as well. So in general, the security system, because we face a huge like uh, war in the center of Europe after World War II, it means that the security system doesn't work anymore. So all these uh, things will depend on how the consequences of the war, but even though to win this war, we need to be strong enough during the this period, so Ukraine should be resilient, and uh, these investments and work, what we are doing, is quite, quite important for overall security. Absolutely. Thanks. Thanks again. Thank you. So, Alicia, I, I suppose I, I, I'm going to start off by saying there's so much to unpack <laughs> within what we heard just there. We've often talked with folks who have been trying to build projects. We've been talking with folks who are, you know, developing and addressing the supply chain constraints. We've talked to folks who are addressing the financing constraints as we see kind of the hydrogen kind of system kind of emerge more generally. But but this is this is a whole different ball game and. It, it's it's quite amazing in a way. Yeah. I mean, I'm just so impressed every day by what Ukrainians are capable of, of dealing with and maneuvering around and, and still just moving forward. Um, I mean, it's just really, resilience is used too often, but it's really apt here. So um, I guess it's not too bad that we use it again. Um, but yeah, it's very impressive. It's funny you say resilience because that is a theme throughout this entire interview and, and in terms of the, the conversation more generally, right? In that these systems, you know, by virtue of the kind of modular, I suppose, nature of, of solar panels or, or wind turbines to a degree, 
gives us a, a degree of resiliency that isn't necessarily typical in conventional generation and, and the, the risks and challenges that, that she spoke to around the risk mitigation of rolling these systems out compared to the conventional generation sources is, is pretty amazing. And it's one that I think we've seen in the Caribbean when we've had the fallout from, you know, kind of hurricane season. It, it's quite amazing that we're, we're seeing these systems really show up and, and kind of add this kind of resiliency factor value in a way that, you know, we wouldn't necessarily have been able to kind of address these constraints, you know, you know, many years ago. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's something you don't really think about, but the, the nice thing about renewables is once you set them up, there's no supplies that need to um, come from another country, right? Everything's there in one place. Um, you know, it, you don't have to continuously um, bring in any kind of fossil fuels or, or, you know, biomass or anything. Um, because once they're set up, all the resources there, right there on the ground in your own country. And that's an element of security that is obviously very helpful during a war. But uh, I think it makes people feel more secure as well. And just generally. And then of course, your, your point about the hurricane in that it's just more difficult to destruct. So that is, uh, that is also a positive. Definitely, people are, are realizing that renewables and hydrogen uh, being part of the mix, they, they don't necessarily create the energy trilemma. They, they are a good solution for it. And that, that word, you know, comes up every 10 years or so. But I think that people have blamed energy security issues on renewables many times, like Texas or, you know, the intermittency they, they will, will blame. But um, but at the end of the day, it's actually um, much more reliable. And we're seeing now with Texas, again, that uh, it's, it's the renewables that stand up in, in these severe uh, changes in, in weather patterns and, you know, very, it's been very hot uh, all over the world. So um, it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, I, I definitely think that people are starting to really recognize that renewables are resilient in, in many different ways. I mean, given given your experience of obviously working with the Operation Antifreeze effort and, and, and similar, I'm sure, I suppose one of the, the, the hard things I, I expect to really kind of get to is like, how difficult is this to really do, in, given the circumstances? And, and very difficult, but like from your experience of kind of engaging, um, I'd be very interested to just hear, hear kind of exactly how tough something like this could be? Well, I mean, I don't think that proper large projects are being built right now. You know, they can be developed um, from a desktop point of view and you can do um, surveys and you can find out information and you can be ready to hit the ground running once the war is over. But, uh, you, I mean, I don't think you could construct a very tall mast right now in very many places. So uh, just collecting the data for, for wind would be difficult. But, you know, there's a lot of other things that you can do and you can get the right partners, you can get the land and you can, there's, there's a lot of things you can do. And, and the war insurance is really helpful as well. But th- this is serious damage. I mean, uh, just to put it in perspective, there's already been $500 billion worth of damage to Ukraine by Russia. And 
After World War II, the Marshall Plan was conceived to basically pay for all of the damage to 17 different countries in Europe. And that totaled about $300 billion in today's dollars. So that just is mind boggling that 17 different countries were rebuilt. And, and we know that the Marshall Plan was quite successful in this rebuilding. So that and, 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 and in one year or more, a little bit, a year and a half, I guess, uh, Russia has, has done almost twice that damage to one country. Uh, it just it is really staggering. But it is also really uh, just it's wonderful to hear, as, as she said, about the um, events at Parliament last week and the whole G7 commitment to rebuilding um, Ukraine and rebuilding in a green way. I mean, I think it's great. After World War II, it was actually the American taxpayer that paid for the Marshall Plan. There was a 2 to 3% increase in taxes on everyone, and that's what paid for it. It was, it was that straightforward. And now um, the G7 is going to, you know, take responsibility, but also they're expecting to provide all of these different private sector incentives so that that can be rebuilt through the private sector. But obviously there's lots of incentives and things to make it uh, easier and and to make it a a very attractive location to build these projects in comparison to other places. So, so there'll be some draw, you know, but yeah, it's, it's, (laughs) It's a lot to do, uh, and and it's just uh, amazing how people like uh, Natalia just plow through and and focus, and you know they continue to she continues to add projects to her portfolio and build out the investment mechanism, and also to work with the government on what needs to be done and, and how to do it rationally and who to partner with, and it's just I'm, I'm very impressed um, specifically with Natalia, but 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 also generally with the the government and. Uh, just a number of just the average Ukrainian who's using a little, you know, solar generator on their terrace to to supply power to their cell phone and and get Wi-Fi so that they are connected to the world. I mean, it, it's it's amazing what they have been able to do with so little. Yeah, and I think I think I think the point is that this is a substantial body of work and a substantial effort already but you know there's an awful lot of road left to run here and and you know thinking about like i'm I'm just slightly flabbergasted by comparison to the challenges that we see in even here just in the u.s in developing these projects albeit some of them are localized you know kind of regionalized challenges you know the degree of the kind of ingenuity and the the kind of the desire to get moving already, and and it's it's quite amazing. It's quite a testimony to kind of the the kind of the human spirit a little bit. So um, yeah, quite a quite an uplifting uh, story in a in a in a dark time in a way, uh, which is fantastic. Yeah, definitely. And, and uh, you can hear it in her voice when she said, you know, and we will win the war. <laughs> and it was not, <laughs> there was not a question. And, um, and and I think that's right. I mean, we, it just it's unacceptable to have any other outcome for Europe and, and for the rest of the world. But as an American, but sitting in London, it does feel, I think, closer to me than maybe other Americans. But, uh, you know, just as with World War II, like, that's no excuse for the U.S. not taking responsibility as well, because it really is an attack on freedom. I mean, we've never, we have not had such a black and white example since World War II, right? 
where a country just went into another country and just destroyed it. <laughs> so looking forward to the day when this is over. And um, as she said, that we have found a way to strengthen our response to things like this in the future. I, I think there will be some sort of reorganization of NATO and, and other uh, bodies uh, to deal with this issue, which might continue to occur uh, as we enter this, you know, multipolar world. Well, on, on that note, and, and <laughs> as that uh, uh, prognosis of our, our kind of uh, future international uh, relations state, I, I think this is an uplifting story about a lot of different things and hopefully folks enjoy it as well as an as a insight and a, a lesson about what can be done as opposed to the uh all the challenges of doing these things yes 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 all right well thanks very much alicia talk to you soon <laughs> okay take care that was everything about hydrogen hosted by the team patrick malloy alicia eastman and chris jackson if you have a question for the Hydrogen team or any of our guests and would like to get in touch, you can shoot us an email on info at h2podcast.com or alternatively, you can follow us on LinkedIn or tweet us. Our handle is at About Hydrogen. Thanks again for listening and we'll see you next time. Hold up. 